Hello. <laughs> Hello, everybody. My jingle and my uh, font and everything are still out of date. So it's another fortnight of not updating my media. But if you're new here, you won't know that. So uh, you might be wondering what on earth I'm going on about. But my name is Natalie. I um, run a club called the Curious Descendants Club, which is all about writing your family history. Uh, and I think to uh, to really get to know your ancestors, you have to cast the net wide and get to know much about all different types of history as possible. And so today I am joined by Justin, who I will let who introduce yourself to talk all about queer history. So hi, Justin. <laughs> hi, Natalie. Thanks for having me here today. Thank you for coming. Um, so I'm really excited to get stuck in, but I don't know if you want to tell people where you're from and what you do, just uh, so they know who you are. Sure, sure. Yeah, I'm coming to you live from New Cross here in London. Um, I'm lecturer in queer history at Goldsmiths University of London, where I also convene the MA Queer History, which is the only queer history uh, master's degree in the world. So I am, my work is entirely focused on researching and teaching and uh, telling the LGBTQ past. Brilliant, thank you. See, this is why I always ask guests to introduce themselves because I know if I do it, I will not give it do it justice at all. So thank you. <laughs> um, if you're listening and you'd like to comment with any questions, please do feel free. Um, okay, so just starting right at the very beginning, what exactly is queer history and what do we mean when we use the word queer? Yeah, no, that's a really good question right off the bat. I mean, this is, and even that word queer is something that is always worth reflecting on. So, it, and because for many people, the word queer is still a really offensive term and one that they uh, experienced as a term of violence, that they might have experienced homophobic violence and with kicks and punches heard that word used against them. Um, so a lot of people are, or some people can be surprised that we're using it now and that we're using it in a university course. Um, legally, my title is lecturer in queer history and the degree is queer history. And that's also for a very, a very deliberate reason um, that ever since the, the 80s, really, um, both grassroots um, people uh, uh, that might ident identify as queer or might identify um, under other other elements of LGBTQ plusness have tried to reclaim the word and take the venom out of it and use it um, as a term of self-description that speaks to them and resonates differently than say lesbian or gay or bi did for them in the past. Um, as, as academics, we use it as both an umbrella to capture LGBTQIA plus and whatever else we might add to that um, uh, as, a, as, a, as a way of recognizing the incredible diversity in our community today. And also that some people, like I said, identify as queer and it's, rec it's important to recognize that some people do. We also recognize that history of, of violence and danger in the past. And also that before that, there were people that identified as queer sometimes. I've seen letters from the 1930s in which uh, a man described himself as queer in a way that resonates at least with, um, uh, with our understandings today. But for historians, it's also really important because we would argue as queer historians that we're not just looking for LGBT people in the past, that actually in the past, people aren't exactly like us. And to call them exactly the same thing, actually, as much as it might satisfy us to find our ancestors, it kind of denies them some of their uh, uh, some of their life and denies them some of the specificity of the world that they lived in and the way they understood their lives. Um, and so we try at least to acknowledge that people 
in the 1800s, the 1600s, the 400s, um, who might experience same-sex desire or gender non-conforming behavior um, aren't exactly like us today. And queer tries to get us to think about that, that we're not just finding and me as a gay man in 2022, I'm not just finding, oh, here's another gay man in 1830. He's actually quite different from me, even if we have similarities. Oh, you think it's really interesting, actually. I was reflecting earlier on the word queer because I think growing up, I thought of it as sometimes used as a slur, but also just a word to kind of mean somebody's a bit odd or a bit different, which in mm. itself could be insulting or not, depending on your, your viewpoint. And then, and then I was thinking about kind of the use of it in popular culture and my first memory of it being used is probably queer as folk and that mm. kind of exploding onto the scenes in that kind of what 90s so yeah. it is definitely got a really interesting history itself as a word I think so thank yeah. you for that explanation well you're absolutely you're absolutely right about those points too about that that meaning of the word as being a bit strange or different because how many of us want to just be normal these days anyway um <laughs> <It's and> <laughs> And then, well, and then some of us, however much we might try, we're not going to succeed. <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah, I'm sorry, just noticing that all of my uh, cables have gone in a tangle around my head. But um, no, yeah, I, there's no such thing as normal, is there? I think, I think when you're younger, you can spend, you know, or certainly I did, I think in my teen years, spend all this time trying to fit in and be normal. And then as you get older, you realise that nobody's normal and it's, mm. it's really quite freeing. And you kind of hopefully find your tribe of people, in my case, um, you know, people who like talking about history non-stop and who don't think I'm a complete geek or think I'm a complete geek and don't care. So, you know, whatever your thing is, you know? <laughs> so yeah, no, I agree. Okay. So it's interesting that you were saying about looking at somebody in, in the past who might be queer and, um, and obviously they're not necessarily fitting into kind of a neat box of how we might define somebody today as, as gay. Um, so with that being the case, how do you go back and look at the past and look for those clues about whether somebody might be queer and kind of find those stories? Especially ones, uh, you know, especially in case, obviously there are cases where people were, were, were criminalised and obviously that gives you more uh, sad, but also gives you the evidence, I suppose. But if that isn't the case, how do you, how do you kind of go about digging up those stories and looking for, for queerness in the past? Yeah, yeah. No, that's a really good question, too, because, I mean, how do we look for something that has been so often deliberately obscured? Um, in the yeah. Past? Either by the state, by officials, by whomever that wants to potentially erase that history, or people themselves that want to protect themselves and want to uh, have safety and security and don't want that to be found out. So, um, so in addition to, yeah, you might find that there's trial records, court records, someone's been charged with, uh, with offences that give you an indication that they fell foul of the law for homosexual offenses in, in places where that was illegal. Um, of course, that generally is going to privilege men's lives and men's stories rather than women's, because at least in, in the UK, uh, homosexual acts between men were illegal, um, but homosexual acts between women were not. So already, if you're only looking at legal and court records, you're, you're for the most part, not entirely, but for the most part, going to neglect the lives um, of, of, of lesbians and, and women who desired other women. Um, again, looking to classic family history sources, family papers, documents, letters, um, relationships being shown in these kinds of documents. But then sometimes you need to be able to discern the codes that are in there because it's not necessarily going to be the case that great Aunt Elma is writing a letter in the 1920s saying to my dearest uh, uh, Edna, 
um, I've missed you so much and I love you and I wish we could be truthful about this. It's never going to be, um, or it's, I shouldn't say never. There's, there's these amazing cases sometimes where gold dust appears. Yeah, that's right. But, um, but that's rare. I mean, it's, it's more about looking between the lines, looking for suggestions, looking for silences and what those might mean. Um, I suppose there's always that kind of stereotype of the bachelor uncle and the spinster aunt. And I mean, that could be something to look further into. Of course, it's not um, definitive by any stretch, um, but um, people that lived outside of the norms of their time might also um, be, be um, uh, relevant for looking into our family's queer histories. But we shouldn't just assume that if someone was single all their lives, they were just getting up to something that wasn't legal because there's nothing, there's, there's not much stopping married couples, heterosexually married couples from also having relationships external to that with members of the same sex. Or within those relationships, the partner might know and they might have an understanding and it might be understood. And I've spoken to a number of people that were in, in opposite sex marriages in the, in the 1940s, 1950s. So certainly that period in which we think this was not spoken about, people wouldn't have known. They tell me their partner knew, and this was just, this was the terms of their relationship, whether that was successful, whether that was not, I mean, that's particular to their relationship, but it was, it was known and um, uh, they might've kept it from wider families, but that couple had reasons for uh, undertaking the relationship that they did. Yeah, I think sometimes we underestimate how transactional marriages can be as well and how they, they you know, as much as we want them to be about love, they can also be about a whole host of different things, especially in the past, you know. Yeah, was, yeah. so no, it's really interesting. It's, funnily enough, we were having a discussion on Twitter. Um, a really great family historian was asking about um, finding married couples that were childless and the the kind of dangers of um, assuming why but also not wanting to ignore it um so it's, it makes for a really interesting uh, conversation i think of, of, of ethical dilemmas but also trying to dig deeper for those um extra little details that might give you clues um, yeah yeah okay so in the cases where you have found evidence that of um, queer pasts, and I know I'm thinking of your postcards here to give you a hint because I know we drafted these questions a long time ago. What kind of evidence do you find that that might suggest, you know, more concretely suggest um, queerness in the past? Yeah, so this was something, this is, this is a really exciting topic for me because it's a new area of research that I'm exploring. I suppose I've been interested, maybe I should back it up a little bit. I've been interested in family history for a long time. Um, my paternal family is all Mormon. So there's all kinds of interest in, in family history and genealogy that I just grew up around. Um, and this taken for grantedness that you'd want to know your family tree and everybody back and fill that in and know about everybody. And then I suppose the history, the little, the little baby budding historian in me as a, as a kid, gravitated toward that as a kind of accessible history that I could learn about my own family, their migration patterns, who did what, how they, yeah, all of these things. And we have all these different family stories. Um, so I've always been interested in family histories, I think. And now it's just recently in the last year or so that I've really started thinking about it in terms of my professional work in queer history. And that's when we first encountered each other was I was starting to explore how do you get insights into this and how do you find these in one area that I started looking at was um, postcards, as you mentioned. And I started um, buying postcards online that um, either twigged my queer spidey sense 
um, or with a little bit of digging, I knew ahead of time that there was uh, something to that. And the wonderful thing is with postcards is you have, you're likely to have someone's name and you have an address for sure. And so with the um, uh, census records, for instance, and electoral rolls and everything else, you can start finding households based on that information. And so what I did with one postcard that I found quite early, this was one that was, um, uh, I, I, I'm at Goldsmiths now rather at home, otherwise I would pull it out, but imagine the scene. It's a, uh, the, the, the postcard is along the embankment here in London. It's a dark night, it's a bit foggy. You can just see the silhouettes of trees. You see one man and then uh, speak, facing another man who is uh, a police officer. He's got a sort of Bobby's cap on, Bobby's hat on. And I thought, this is, this is, this is, this is suggestive to me. It was just a light nighttime London scene. It was sold commercially. Um, so you could have bought it for any number of reasons. You could have bought that to send back to Aunt Elma if you wanted to. But it also, I looked at it, I'm like, I think this postcard would resonate with um, queer men in the, the postcard was from the 1920s. And I'm like, I think this would resonate because there was that sense of furtiveness in the dark, the danger of the police officer um, stopping you, arresting you um, uh, uh, for, for um, um, uh, what they would have called soliciting, um, uh, soliciting and importuning if you were trying to meet other men. And often along, along the river, there were particular walks that were known as useful um, uh, for queer men at the time. There's just a whole bunch of suggestions in the image that said to me, I think this might be useful. And the other side, it was um, uh, 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 the postcard was written from one man to, I think, just initials and then the address um, in Birmingham, I think it was. And it was basically him going on uh, about how awful the theater was in London. And this play was, it was very, it was very campy and prissy. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, well, sometimes stereotypes are to, are, are to, are to true, are to case. Um, and I thought, mm, this is now double confirming what I thought. And when I went to um, the various family history uh, databases and sites and brought up information about the address, I saw that at that address uh, were two men. And so there just starts being this overwhelming uh, 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 snowball of evidence that I've got a postcard that has imagery that is resonant for queer men at the time. I've got text that's about this kind of theatery theatery world in the West End in the 1920s. And then I've got a household that only has two men living in it. Yeah. It's all starting to come together. And I haven't dug up much more into the men involved. I think one of them ended up actually being, I found out he was significant in, um, in theater and I think was one of the founders of the Malvern Festival. So uh, was actually, and I think what it was then, one of them I confirmed later in life, it was confirmed he was, he was gay. Um, okay. So all of my, all my, all my queer spidey sense was right. <laughs> gay doll was staying bang on. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So the symbols are really interesting, actually, when you when you're describing the um, the image on the front of the um, a postcard, because I'm guessing if something's had to be kept secret um, for fear of um, of if not criminality, of fear of being um, socially unaccepted, um, then you know over time, different ways of communicating subvertly must have been created in order to you know in order to find people that were like yourself exactly um so what kind of is there any so i was thinking is it violets are a symbol of 
I mean, I suppose yeah. I wonder if, like, uh, I mean, the classic one is the Green Carnation. Okay, uh, I've never heard of that. That goes back to uh, to Wilde. Well, Oscar Wilde, I understand. I think pansies are always kind of playful. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. The violet, maybe. I'd have to look into some of that. As I say, some of the other ones that I'm looking for in the postcards are again those kind of that kind of nighttime scene that sort of suggests danger and possibility. Guardsmen. Um, and there's, I mean, today you can buy loads of postcards with guardsmen on them, the sort of big bear cap type that are in front of Buckingham Palace. Yeah. Um, but I, the guardsmen were known for much of the 20th century to dabble in uh, sex work with other men. Um, so they oh, were really? eroticized. They were definitely on the, uh, they were, they were uh, 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 commercially available. And so I've started looking for postcards of guardsmen written by men to other men as another way into possible uh, uh, possible examples. That's fascinating. That just makes me think of like, like almost the equivalent of buying like a YMCA, you know, the old song yeah. with, the, like, with, the, with the guys from the YMCA song, like on the front of it now, almost yeah, you know, yeah. like a flag. And, and then for earlier ones, I've been looking at a lot of, um, there's a few, especially earlier 20th, late 19th century, uh, male impersonators, and I'm, I'm looking. I want to look into the stories of the women who wrote to other women using these pictures of Vesta Tilly or Hetty King, famous male impersonators on the um, uh, uh, on the uh, music hall stage. Um, that were, I mean, there's there's queer codings there in terms of cross dressing, gender crossing. They weren't necessarily always queer themselves, but they could be useful as symbols. And again, the postcards give an opportunity. Uh, uh, to explore that. And it's not always, it's not, okay, we've got one woman writing to another woman on this postcard uh, with a male uh, impersonator. Well, clearly they're lesbians. That's <laughs> but it opens up that possibility that we might be able to read between the lines and follow more. And there's going to be loads of dead ends, but uh, some possibilities. So this also goes to say in terms of with your own family histories and whatnot, with the records that might be passed down to you, it's not sort of, see what you can find on the internet and, and dig for people, you might actually have some of these in your own family that have been passed down with someone's papers. They might have some of these postcards. And you might ask, why was Aunt Elma getting all of these male impersonator postcards? Um, maybe there's a story, maybe there's not a story there, but maybe there is. Yeah, it's really interesting. I am, um, I guess, yeah, it, it, it's difficult because I was just thinking about um, uh, women impersonating um, um, men then. And I was just thinking in the past, it's difficult because you you might decide to cross-dress because of for queer reasons, but you also might decide to cross-dress because you you feel like you have more opportunity as a man, you know, mm -hmm. and if you can disguise your gender because you want to do something in particular. So it's, okay. it's really difficult to kind of um, decode. And I suppose when you find these kind of um, clues, do you do you tend to err on the side of caution and kind of say this could indicate or I think you know I'm like 80% sure but I haven't got that final cherry on the cake mm -hmm. so I can I can still write about it and still say this might be the case and it still explore that but I don't mm -hmm. kind of go out and say yes this is definite do you, do you kind of draw your own kind of percentages boundaries if you know yeah. what I mean so I know I do with family history I look at things and I think right I'm going to say this because I'm more than 60% sure but I'm going to make sure I really caveat it in this is what I know and these are the bits that are missing that I wish I knew that I can't yeah. answer and I'm, I'm guessing it would be the same for any history but 
I think I, I probably tend to, to be quite cautious. And I think I'd also describe things to different audiences. So there's a difference between what I would um, say in a chat like this, say, I think so. This is yeah, my crunch. Yeah. I think so. Versus what I would publish in an academic paper um, and put a lot more caveats around it. But I also, I'm also in many ways um, uh, a very old fashioned historian that I want to have lots of different kinds of evidence from different kinds of sources that help support that. Very often with queer history, you'll never find that. You're lucky to get just one little nugget somewhere. But I do, in some cases, try to research around someone. So in, in several cases, actually, I have, um, well, in one case, I found a, um, a, a, a trial records at the National Archives from the 1930s um, in which uh, a man was found innocent. Um, but there was so much evidence and so much. I mean, the trial itself just made me feel a bit, hmm, there's more to this story. Um, and ultimately it was that a younger man that he was accused of having sex with um, was convicted for other offenses himself as being a sort of corrupt, delinquent youth. And the wealthy, well-to-do, military-affiliated gentleman couldn't possibly guilt be guilty. Mm -hmm. uh, in the end, that, that trial that was in 1933, I found the family. And the family subsequently shared all of their uh, family records with me, um, his letters. Um, so actually, there's, during the trial, a lot of his letters to his wife were confiscated and put in the trial records that are still at the National Archives. So I was able to fill in the family with the letters they don't have. And they were able to fill out the ones I hadn't seen that remained with the family from the rest of his life. He died just a few years later. Um, wow. Of natural causes. Um, annoyingly, his stepdaughter was still alive when I first found the family, but passed away before I could meet her. And she was the last living person that would have known him uh, in person. Um, but what I learned by talking to the family is they're like, oh yeah, we knew about the trial. We didn't know about the files at the National Archives, but we knew about the trial. We knew about his relationship with, uh, with, with our, our grandmother. Um, and um, uh, uh, this was something that was shared knowledge in our family. Oh, and of course he was guilty. <laughs> So in that case, I'm family saying, oh, well, yeah, this yeah. Found him innocent, but we know better than that. Yeah, that's really interesting. I am. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's gold dust, that kind of thing. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, one of the things that you just reminded me of is that um, uh, there was a set of photos that went quite viral. Um, and they were, I think they were mostly kind of World War One-ish kind of era. Um, and they were of supposedly of all queer people, um, but some of them were some of them were you know seemed quite obviously queer, like men kissing. Um, but uh, and these were mostly men as well in these photographs. But um, some of them were you know a man sat on another man's lap, or um, some people with their arms around each other. And I know when I mentioned it to you in our our pre chat, you were telling me about how you kind of have to be careful with those kind of sources because our you know how we what we might view as affectionate and tactile might be different in the past or people in the past might be more tactile or, and we might be less or vice versa and I, I was just wondering if you could tell me a little bit about them about yeah that. I mean that that's been such an interesting collection because I um what's it is it called men loving or something like that it's a something book. like that it's, a, it's an amazing collection yeah um, oh, it it's is. interesting amazing collection there's so many incredible 
uh, valuable to, to our history images um, in, in that book. Um, and clearly they resonate with, I mean, it's, it's, it's all images of men, if I remember correctly. So obviously this is a book that resonates powerfully with gay men. And it's been all over, it was all over the gay press last year. And of course, everybody loves it. Um, as a historian, well, I've got, I, I've got two hats that I'm wearing on this one. As, as a gay man, I see these images and they really speak to me and they really, they go, they go right here. Um, and, and they really resonate. And I, I, I see, I see myself in, in these images from the past. I can imagine myself in those situations, but then I put my historian hat on and I'm like, well, some of these no doubt were men that were in intimate relationships or, or maybe just in casual relationships. I mean, why does everything have to be loving? Why can't it just be <laughs> physical gratification? Um, mm -hmm. people were horny in the past too. Um, and, and sometimes that's, that's the answer. Um, um, but we should be thinking about what, like what you, what you just said, what physical proximity, physical intimacy of various types of armor on someone, um, what appears to be embracing, what does that mean? We don't know if these people are lovers, long-term, like, uh, workmates, siblings, uh, other relatives, anything. Um, and no doubt some of them are. Some of them are going to be just playfully horsing around, and that's the picture. There was one I remember seeing, I should have, uh, it's, I want to bring it to my students one day, that shows two men in sort of grass, kind of, um, it looks like they're, one has got his arm over the other one, their legs are entwined, and it looks like this really, not quite sexual, but very intimate, powerful embrace. And it's so touching. And then the next picture is that not being zoomed in. And it, it's captioned from like 1910 that this was at a boxing competition and they'd fallen to the ground <laughs> and were wrestling in the dirt. And it's as soon as you see that, it's so clearly wrestling in the dirt. But before you see the full image, it's this powerful expression of love. But surely that must tell us something about ourselves i guess or about the people that took the photo and cropped it and 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 totally. shared it and think so that's it i guess it's interesting in itself yeah well that's the thing i think that book with all these pictures of 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 of, of what are presented as gay men in the past tell us way more about ourselves today than about any of those men in those images um i mean that's just one example that um that is is um uh, challenging other times we might say, well, if these are commercially produced photographs and some of them are going to be like, um, uh, uh, you, we, you've seen the images where they're from a photographer's studio and it's a cardboard and it's got the maker's stuff on the back. If homosexuality is illegal and punishable by minimum two years imprisonment, punishable by death until 1861, these guys are not going to walk down to the high street and have their canoodling pictures taken. Um, it's just not going to happen. There's an argument for snapshots and, and uh, later when you can have um, um, develop your own photographs, um, that some of that would be doing it, or the amazing pictures in automatic um, photography booths where you can, no one has to process it, no one else is going to see it. You just get the picture and then you go. And there's amazing, completely verifiable pictures of uh, male couples from the 50s and 60s. Um, with those kinds of images. And I find those really powerful. Um, so this isn't to sort of rain on everybody's parade um, that uh, these older images can't possibly be of queer couples. It's just to say, 
Maybe they are, and I dearly hope that many of them are because it means so much to me, and many of them won't be. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's interesting. I, I, I guess, yeah. It's funny, it reminds me of when I was a young teenager, my parents took me on, on holiday to Italy. And um, I, I grew up in a household where um, uh, my mum had gay friends. Um, in fact, my mum had a cross-dresser friend. So I was quite um, uh, was used to seeing people holding hands and things and stuff. But we went to um, Italy and I remember turning around to my mum and saying, there's quite a lot of gay people in Italy. <laughs> no, that's just men holding hands because they're friends and we're on the continent and things are a bit different, you know, sort of thing. So I guess it's, it's a similar kind of thing, you know. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. We should remember the past is a different country. Yeah, yeah. I just wish I could visit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we can get glimpses, can't we? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So um, I know that you've got a particular interest in kind of late and twentieth century queer history, and I just wondered why is that? Why is that period the the period that kind of grabs you? Um, that's an interesting question because I, I I I started my undergraduate studies looking at ancient history. And for some reason, and I'd been fascinated with that as a kid, I was wanted to know all about ancient Greece and Rome, uh, ancient Egypt, and goodness knows there's plenty of queer history there that I would have found once I kind of matured into, uh, uh, into, into, into my full historian self. Um, but then something, I guess, clicked with my classes as an undergraduate in Canada. I just got more interested in Victorian and 20th century histories, and I've stayed with that ever since. And I suppose... I suppose it's also just the uh, the kinds of sources are really interesting to me. And I suppose my 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 area of specific research is actually histories of capitalism and homosexuality. I've been doing um, I've been working on a project for seventy three years. It feels like uh, <laughs> a prehistory of the pink pound, um, and so that really is very much a, a, a late nineteenth and twentieth century phenomenon. So, um, so I've gravitated toward that. And I suppose I did business studies even as an undergraduate. So I'm interested in advertising and marketing and all of these things. So uh, I just got pulled into the uh, the 20th century. So what what is what's the pink pound? What's... Oh, that's another. I can give a talk on that for now. <laughs> um, Sorry, well, I'm really interested in finding out how businesses um, grappled with the topic of homosexuality. Um, queerness, LGBTQness, how they tried to speak to or identify queer consumers in the past, long before the period of gay liberation, long before the 70s and 80s, when this could be done more openly, um, and how they profited from discussions of homosexuality um, and queerness, either with supportive, progressive uh, 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 materials in magazines and books, what have you, but also homophobia um, and how that can be a saleable commodity. So I've tried to look at all these kinds of relationships between homosexuality and consumer capitalism and how anyone can profit from uh, queer consumers or queerness more broadly. That sounds really interesting. And do you compare that to, to, to today? Um, I take it up to, it's mostly 20th century. Um, by the time we get to today, it gets really complex. But whenever I give talks, everybody wants to ask about pride, the commodification of pride, corporate sponsorship, um, and so I've been answering more and more of those questions. And fortunately, I did a business degree, so I talk about it. <laughs> but there's times where I'm, when I often say, like, I'm much more comfortable talking about dead people. <laughs> I'll line you up for interview number two. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. So um, 
uh, I'm just reading from my list, so it's a little bit of a jump now. But um, the next question on my list happens to be, and I think it's a really interesting one, even though it's probably a little bit of a break in the flow to a certain degree, is how has queerness been accommodated into normative structures? Well, that actually does relate to some of what we were talking about when I said that um, we uh, we shouldn't just be looking for lesbian and gay, trans, bi people in the past. We should think about how other people's lives are different from our own. So there's been really amazing research done by, well, scholars in the States, here in the UK. There's a great scholar called Helen Smith, um, who is, uh, uh, um, I'm trying to remember, she is, I was going to say Sheffield, she's, 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 based there but i think I, she's at lincoln i'm pretty sure she's at lincoln um i need to have my notes here we'll find her we'll put her on the blog <laughs> exactly. put helen smith on the blog she's done amazing research that's looked into the industrial workplaces of uh yorkshire in the 30s 40s 50s and really looked at how um, men who were working there who were could be married could have kids were ostensibly straight um, we're having sex with coworkers uh, uh, at work on on uh, work trips um, in the mines in the steel mills. Not just that this was happening, because you might say, okay, Justin, sure, there's always examples of homosexual activity, and we often know that because of trials and things. What Helen found, um, and I've been really influenced by this, was that these were accommodated by their families and by their communities. Um, that these were part of normal heterosexuality at this time. Um, and so long as these men demonstrated that they were of good character, um, good earners, um, contributors to their family, this didn't have to disrupt those lives. Um, and um, their wives might know about it, their communities might know about it, but if they weren't, they weren't going to leave their wives to go off with some other guy, and he wasn't going to get pregnant. So actually, as long as they didn't disrupt the stability of the home, the family, and the community, this activity could be accommodated within these communities. And I think what it, what it should tell us is probably what Helen found in Yorkshire, as much as there hasn't been a lot of work on this, is probably not impossible out of the ordinary in a lot of other places. And I think we have to think about a lot more heteroflexibility in the past, that people's sexuality could be more fluid before we had this really strict binary that you're gay or you're straight. Um, and maybe that makes more sense to us now as, as younger people are, are identifying their sexuality and gender identity in more fluid ways. People like me, I'm 45 very soon. For me, my gender identity and sexuality is really binary. That's just what makes sense to me. And I think my students, in a lot of ways, have a lot more in common with these people from 70, 80 years ago than I do. And it's really interesting. So I think while there's people that are my age and a bit older that might resist some of these histories, my students kind of, they're like, yeah, tell us something we didn't know, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. I guess that comes back to sort of um, what makes somebody, you know, what, 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 for want of a better word, what goes somebody the label of being a certain thing? Mm. Or a certain sexuality or a certain gender. Yeah, you yeah. Know, if, it, if it's predetermined, if it's you that's determining it, then then I guess that that allows for that fluidity much more, doesn't it? It's when it's kind of boxed upon by other people going, okay, you tick this and this and this list, and therefore you must equal, you know, you must mm -hmm. equal X. Yeah, um, yeah. So. 
Well, and the other thing to bear in mind with this case, with these cases in, in the North, um, many of these guys would have known what a homosexual was. They would have read, read in the papers about trials, but they would have been, that's someone else. That's someone from London. That's a city thing. Or that's those effeminate guys, um, those pansies uh, uh, in other places. Not, not real men that are working class and working hard and supporting their families. Of course, I'm not homosexual. I'm not... Yeah, one of those London types that does this. In that case, then, what do you think they, do we know at all what they would have called it or what they would have described what was going on as? Or or would they not even have felt a need to do that? I don't think they would have felt a need to do that. I think they would have just been like, yeah, I mean, if they probably wouldn't have talked about it much for one thing. And if they did, they're just like, they would see themselves as just letting off steam, getting some relief. Um, that's not to say there wasn't emotional investment in it as well, and that there couldn't be uh, uh, emotional relationships, but they would have seen that they might not have named it. They might not have felt the need to name and label it. Um, and in fact, it would have been defined by not being these other things that were labeled. And some of them, that the, 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 they didn't realize that what they were doing was illegal. They didn't realize because illegal was something that the homosexuals did. Um, so what they're doing couldn't possibly be um, and some of them got a surprise when the law felt differently. And that's how we have records of some of them. And in some of those trials and some of those cases, we see uh, uh, in their testimony that they don't see that connection. And for them, it was something different. That's really interesting. Thank you. Um, so actually, that kind of leads me on to a, a kind of linked question, I suppose, is kind of in, in Western cultures, um, how has kind of prejudice changed over time or tolerance changed over time then so if you've got these kind of pockets of tolerance even though is it if it's not named yeah it's difficult but I kind of wonder how that shifted over time and perhaps yeah. it's still yeah. shifting that's an interesting thing because if it's accommodated with the community within a community because the systems of knowledge and understanding are different is that tolerance um, arguably it's something better than tolerance it's just integration of different ways of living and being um, but those places could also be places of vicious homophobia. When when the person is named and identified as that, they might not be met so uh, met with met with support. So um, I think these 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 understandings of um, of tolerance of homophobia of acceptance they're shifting over time, and they're on this kind of uh, uh, uncertain terrain because who's being spoken about. Um, it's more than just who you have sex with. It's also about gender presentation. Are you conventionally masculine? Are you effeminate? Are you cross-dressing? Are you possibly trans? Um, all of these things come into play as well. What about the relative power you have economically? Can you get away well, like the, like the guy that I told you about in that trial? One guy was well-off, well-connected, and was found innocent, even though the family doesn't believe he is. Um, the younger man who came from uh, a rural family was struggling to get by, was probably uh, a casual sex worker, I think. Um, he was found guilty in part because he couldn't defend himself as well. He didn't have the language to do so, the connections to do so, the money to do so. He was what, 23, 24. He was imprisoned and he died in prison. He went in a healthy man and he was dead before he was let out. That was something I remember finding that in the archive that... I was looking for what happened to the younger man for about a year. And I was tracing, again, through these family history websites and family history databases. His name was showing up in different places, but it was never the same person. 
Um, in one instance, I found a man with the same name had a car dealership in the 40s or 50s um, in Shoreditch and I'm like, and was married. And I'm like, oh, this is interesting. Here I'm, I'm, I thought this is going to be a great story. I've got this 1920s, sorry, 1930s sex worker that later on is, is married and working his way up the social uh, ladder in Shoreditch 15, 20 years later. But it wasn't the same guy. Followed someone else, dead ends, and then finally was able to get into the, um, uh, the prison records and yeah found that he was um yeah dead within 18 months and i can only i i suspect the victim of some kind of abuse in prison um i want to talk to scholars of of of, of imprisonment and incarceration to find out more because i have the um uh, very summary results of the um, uh, post-mortem um, and i don't know how to read those because i think uh, i think the terminology they're using is probably suggestive in ways that I don't understand, not being a historian of those questions and medical histories. Um, but it's something that I want to pursue further. I'm really glad you said that, because I think family historians a lot of the time think um, uh, I have to know everything. I have to like work this all out by myself and I have to try and learn how to, to how to read certain historical documents and things. And I think it's really important that um, I love it when academics say, actually, I don't know this because I'm not a specialist in this. So I go to my colleague over here and OK, it's it's harder when you're sat at home as a family historian to do that. But we have this amazing thing called Twitter. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so it's remarkably easier to reach out to people nowadays to ask those questions. So I just wanted to say I think that's a really important point point mm. unrelated to the subject but i just think it's really important yeah, yeah. Um, no and you're right people shouldn't feel pressure to know everything about everything i mean even if, if if some of us are an expert in one thing there's many more things even in history that i know nothing about <laughs> that i know lots about now i think because we're family historians because you look so broadly at things mm -hmm. um you know and and we do we, we find a death certificate and we do try to interpret it you might i don't know go on to welcome trust and look at old medical journal try and suss it out yourself and i think that's there's nothing wrong with doing that i would carry on doing that myself as well but i just think it's really worth remembering that you you can also just um you know ask for a bit of help um, sure. and that there are people out there willing to answer so um okay so actually with crimes is there interestingly i just wanted is there um are different people of different classes or, or dif different economical circumstances um prosecuted for different things is there does there tend to be kind of class lines um, hmm. Well, I mean, in that case, it was definitely a class differentiated, I was going to say couple, I mean, I wouldn't call them a couple, but the, the, the two people yeah. were definitely on different class positions. Um, I think what's interesting is when we look at, so the tabloids in the 1950s is an example of this, uh, they were horrible, vicious, vitriolic, homophobic, terrible um, in, in ways that destroyed and killed people, but they're amazing historical sources. And what they often did in these terrible chain trials where they would um, basically bring loads of people through and um, say, get the, the address book of one and follow up and, and more and more. We have lists um, of people's names, but it'll give their name. It, it, it's, it's mind boggling. My students are always aghast when I show them these. They'll give the person's name, their age, their address, their profession. Um, it's outing them to the world that they've been convicted uh, in the national press. But by looking at their um, profession, we can get a sense of uh, obviously some of the socioeconomic difference. Um, and what we see is counter to, well, the stereotypes at the time were that homosexuality was this elite, effete uh, uh, predilection. Um, and in fact, we see a lot of laborers, 
bakers, tradesmen, shop assistants, I mean, everybody. Um, and I suppose what we, um, I suppose closer research might show different crimes being charged against um, uh, different classes of men in terms of who could defend themselves or who was uh, 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 um, more vulnerable. Um, but what we see in some of this newspaper reportage is that there's actually quite a cross-section of society um, in many ways, um, and that it's quite representative, um, at least of those up to a certain point <laughs> that, um, uh, and beyond that, of course, you can find a, find a way out. But the other thing, actually, as I'm speaking, what I'm realizing in, for, for male homosexual acts, many, 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 many men were charged with um, soliciting and importuning, um, gross indecency in public places, things like that. And often that was because they didn't have the safety, security, and privacy of their own homes and lodgings in or as a place to um, have sex uh, with other men. So they would go to toilets, they would go to parks, um, whereas others more affluent would have the security of private homes, would have the uh, possibility to bring someone home and not be in danger from someone stumbling upon them. But then you get to a point beyond that because the guy actually that I was talking about in the beginning um, that I've gone and met the family, um, he was found out because they had servants. So at the <laughs> end of the social scale, you've got people that know everything that happens in your house and you don't actually have that much privacy, even as you are really wealthy. It's really interesting. Yeah, there's two, very much two ends of the spectrum there. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just going to, we've got about 15 minutes left. So if anyone does have any questions, free, feel free to pop in. I know um, uh, somebody just popped in and put tabloids haven't changed much then. And, yeah. <laughs> kind of agree so um but um uh so we've got two questions really one is um have you got a favorite story or favorite discovery that you'd like to share well I actually, <laughs> I mean, this was pre-planned at all because <laughs> originally when i was uh Thinking about these questions, I thought I might tell that story of the uh, 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 of the man whose family I met. Um, and in fact, what's good is I did bring with me actually one from my own family that works really well um, for this as well, and has intrigued me a lot. And is one that again, it's my queer spidey sense was tingling, and I don't have an answer. But what I have is a cigarette tin, a North American cigarette tin um, that um, uh, belonged to my great uncle Cecil. Um, it was, uh, he died in the 70s, and um, his brother inherited everything. He was unmarried. Um, and a cousin of mine, well, actually, like, that's the Mormon side of the family. So it's like a third cousin, twice removed, something or <laughs> other. Um, but we've stayed in touch. Um, he, his, uh, his grandfather was like the oldest son of the oldest son of the oldest son. Um, so he got, he inherited stuff. I inherited nothing. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, my cousin, uh, who is himself gay as well, inherited this. And he thought, hmm, something's up here. Because inside the tin is, well, a child's marble. So some kind of memento from Cecil's childhood. Um, there's also some pictures of his siblings. I think this is, this is 1915, one of his uh, siblings that died as a child. Um, some other little frontier Canadian pictures, um, family pictures, things like that. But then there's a bunch of pictures of, you can't quite make it out, but there's pictures of men on the prairie on the frontier at the time. This is a school teacher. I've been able to trace him a little bit. He's from Nova Scotia. 
um, but he was a school teacher. So he was separated this, from his family, living singly. School teachers are kind of ambiguous characters, but that's not, it's not necessarily saying a lot. And then there's other ones, uh, just says these two villains, Woodruff and Bert. Okay, so there's a lot of gentlemen friends. Um, someone else, here's Bert again. Don't know much about him. The teachers I actually thought were really interesting. Here's another tiny, 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 tiny picture. Oh, wow. A guy that was uh, a local school teacher, probably just 20 something, first job out west, away from his family, alone. Amongst these, so we're already thinking, okay, Cecil, you've got some family pictures and a lot of gentlemen friends for a confirmed bachelor. Um, and then there was this, an image that I call the Sultry Mountie, <laughs> an RCMP officer taken maybe on the coast in Canada. It looks like a wharf or something there. Um, unlike every other picture in the tin, um, there's nothing on the back of this one. Oh, mysterious. <laughs> yeah. So I just call him the Sultry Mountie. I love and it. it made me think about Cecil. Um, I never met him. I started interviewing some family members and they said, yeah, he never got married. We asked him why. He's like, well, there's, there's no woman out there for me. True enough, maybe. Um, but he also then looked after the kids, looked after the animals, looked after his mom until she died. There's, we have no confirmation at all that he had sex with other men, that he was homosexual, that he was gay. We have no confirmation of anything except he was the bachelor uncle. He got along well with the kids. He cared for people. He performed some of those typically women's roles in the, in the, in the wider family of caregiving, um, uh, of emotional support. Um, everyone liked him. No one asked any questions because you don't do that on the prairie. Um, and, and he died in the 70s. And uh, no, one, no one knew much better. But his brother didn't take apart this collection um, when he inherited it and left it intact. And there was apparently a string around it that just said Cecil's photos or Cecil's photos. Um, and now I've inherited it. And I think there's something queer about Cecil in that broad sense. I'm not, like yeah. I said, I'm not, this is one of those ones where you said, where you were asking, like, how definitively do you say it? Well, there's no, I didn't come across any pornography in here. So there's nothing that uh, shows me anything of, uh, uh, of a sexual nature, but there's this kind of, adding up of possibility. Um, and then when I link that to the stories of his own life and the characterization of him by people that knew him and the kind of silences from other members of the family about him, it just starts to build up a picture of possibility. And I think that's enough. That's enough for me to include Cecil in queer history as part of this bigger range of possibilities. And it resonates for me. Like I, I then think, well, my cousin and I maybe aren't the only pink sheep in the family um, <laughs> and that we have some some forebears. All right, thank you. It's a lovely collection. And um, actually, Divine Mrs. M is just saying, was it directly left to you? I no, think no. I, I think she was wondering if that was a clue. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, it was the uh, 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 my cousin who is gay as well, um, who is, he, he's, he's still alive. He hasn't willed it to me. He very generously gave it to me knowing how interested I am in these histories. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so my last question is, um, and I'm not asking that just because this is queer history, because I ask it of quite a lot of histories, but I think this might be one where some people um, 
especially maybe straight people are thinking well what's that got to do with me as a family historian and I was just wondering whether you could tell me why you think queer history is important and perhaps especially to family historians. Well, because we all have uh, a, a wide range of people in our families, and I think to leave out their stories is to deny their validity in the present. Um, and our families are incredibly diverse, and maybe in their own lives, they weren't welcomed by family members um, and maybe had to hide their lives. And there's something we can do now to um, uh, uh, recover some of those stories. But then the stories of our queer family members might not be just stories of oppression and repression and fear and danger, because lots of families accommodated and included and treasured uh, queer family members in the past. And even if they didn't, um, even if they weren't legally recognized as couples, lots of families had uh, uh, members of their family that lived with members of the same sex and that person was just accommodated within the family. Um, people didn't make a fuss, they just got on with it and said, oh, yeah, Charles, he's been with, uh, he's been with his friend uh, Bert for 30 years. They're, they're really close. And no one would necessarily say, well, they're this, they're that. They would just say, yeah, they've been, they've been together, they've been living together. Um, and, and they would be valued in that family. Children might know them both as uncle because one because they're older. Um, I think there's lots and lots of stories to tell because as much as the stories of persecution, prosecution, uh, oppression are deeply important, deeply traumatic, but important parts of our history, they should never be the only histories that get told. And so often families, I think, are wrongly seen only as sites of abuse and pain for queer people. Um, and that's not the case now, and it's not always the case in the present. Especially in the past. <laughs> I mean, it's not only, it was such a good finish there that I was thinking about it too much as I was saying. I'm like, I think I knew what you meant anyway. It kind of just automatically translates. Thank you. And where can people come and find you if they um, want to support queer history or they want to just uh, find out a bit more about you or um, tweet you? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm on various social media under my, my own name, Justin Ben Justin. There's my finger, Justin Begri across the <laughs> uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm, I'm easily findable online. I'm at Goldsmiths um, at the University of London. We have an MA Queer History. Um, here uh, as well, um, I suppose. Well, I suppose another reason for supporting queer history is that it's always under threat. I mean, this is something you and I were talking about earlier, Natalie, is that even here at Goldsmiths, we're undergoing right now a really painful restructure that's put the entire history department at risk. Every single member of staff, um, uh, bar, bar one, our head of department, um, has been served notice of risk of redundancy, myself and my colleague who teaches queer history as well. So that means 100% of people teaching queer history here um, at the only MA queer history in the world are at risk of redundancy. And we're going through this process now waiting to find out whether our jobs will survive and whether this, 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 this pioneering program will survive. Oh, I certainly hope it does. And uh, yeah, uh, if you need me to retweet anything in support, then I quite happily will. And I'm sure lots of people watching will as well. So thank you so much, Justin. I am going to hit the end broadcast button and it will do this awkward thing where it takes a second to not be live. And then I'm sat there freeze framed going. <laughs> <laughs> but I will hit it anyway. But thank you very much. <laughs> thank you so much. Lovely talking.